Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be. This is the Ethics Experts. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. And if you are a returning subscriber, hello, bestie. I hope you're having another amazing day. You see what happens when you subscribe to the Ethics Experts. You get a bonus greeting on every single episode. So hit that subscribe button. I am here for a very exciting episode with Carol Switzer, co-founder and president of OSEG, the inventor of GRC. So many of us are swimming in this GRC pool, and we have you to thank for the acronym that uh, is attached to all of our names. How's it going, Carol? Great. How's it going with you today? Oh, I have uh, been pretty excited to talk to you all day. You have such a such an interesting background. You run one of my favorite organizations um, in the GRC game, and um, I don't know. I just I think you have a lot of really cool perspectives and a lot of really cool experiences that we can all you know pull from. The whole point of this podcast is really to help ethics and compliance and human resource folks elevate. You know, for many years we've been in the back office, we've been uh, cost centers in our our organization, and it feels like. A lot of the work that people like you have laid down over the years is creating a foundation that we're, it feels like we're really about to burst, burst forward. So maybe we can start by just talking a little bit about how you came to start OSEG. What opportunities did, did you see that caused you to say, man, I got to turn this, this idea into a reality and uh, a little bit about what that journey has been like. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to do that. So uh, before uh, my colleague Scott Mitchell and I, started OSEG, uh, I had been a, an attorney in Washington, D.C. with an environmental law practice uh, nationally for almost 20 years. And in the course of that work, I helped a lot of companies develop um, an, e- an environmental capability. And we were always talking about you know, how to do that in a more structured way that would provide some real actionable information while protecting the organization and contributing to its business objectives. Towards the end of 2002, I met Scott. Um, He had been previously uh, a consultant at um, Accenture. And after that, he had started uh, an e-learning company in the early days of e-learning. He patented some really key um, elements in the technology that supports e-learning. And at the point I had met him, he had sold that business to a larger e-learning company. He was really operating as a um, angel investor in, in tech startups. And in the course of that, he began to see a need for standardization across compliance and ethics that what was happening in most organizations was there might've been 15 different silos of compliance, right? One for environmental, one for antitrust, one for HR, all with their own approaches, all having designed their own uh, structures of what kind of controls and reporting and metrics, but it wasn't really effective in helping the organization. And so when we met, We started OSEG, which was originally called the Open Compliance and Ethics Group, with that purpose in mind, creating a standardized uh, framework for compliance because it was a core business function and there was no framework in existence. We put together uh, two groups. First, we put together um, an executive advisory board. It was chaired by... um, 
um, Roy Groves, who was the uh, chairman of Marsh at the time, uh, Ray Groves, excuse me. And um, it had, you know, people at that level, uh, very senior executives, representatives from big four firms, and so on. And they advised us to create this model initially as guidance. Uh, don't call it standards. It will become de facto standards. And that is exactly what has happened. The second group that we put into place were the steering committee and, and drafting group and, uh, for the model. And as we did that, uh, we involved um, people from many different walks of life from business, former regulators, um, professors who were involved not only in compliance and ethics, but in risk and internal audit and HR and other relevant areas. So as we developed this first version that we released for public review, we began as a group to recognize that the need wasn't just to integrate across compliance silos, but to integrate risk management and compliance and the overall governance of the organization. In those very early days, we understood that these needed to be interrelated, that they needed to share you know, what my friend and, and colleague in that process at the time, Lee Dittmar, uh, who at the time was running the governance um, uh, section uh, uh, of Deloitte, uh, he would call one version of the truth. And I'm sure you've heard other people use that phrase since then, but that's really about you know, having the data and the information in line. And you have to think about the timing here. This was 2003 now. And so technology was really beginning to develop for the first time in a way that could enable that kind of integration and shared data. And so we, a small group of us who were part of that committee, uh, Lee, Scott, myself, um, Michael Rasmussen, who at the time was at Forrester mm -hmm. and others, settled on the acronym of Governance, Risk Management and Compliance, GRC, well knowing that those aren't the only roles that are involved in this process of integration, but 13 letter acronyms just don't work. Yeah, it's hard to form a so word out of that. GRC is where we landed. Um, and so we say OSEG invented the concept of GRC because what we did was to flesh that out in what we call the GRC capability model. It's also called the OSEG Red Book. And that has really driven both the approach to process and the approach to development of GRC technology, which today is a multi billion dollar market sector. Why do you think OSEG is still around? There's been a lot of thing, a lot of companies or a lot of organizations have popped up. Everybody likes to call themselves a think tank. You guys have sort of stood the test of time. What, what would you attribute that to? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I think there are two really clear reasons. Um, one is we are structured as a nonprofit. We're actually a 501c3, a public charity, which means we have greater transparency than other types of nonprofits that uh, associations tend to be set up as. Um, but it also comes from our background. Um, and we have always taken OSEG 
treated OSEC like a startup, basically. Um, we're always looking for new innovation. We're, we, we've always structured in a way that keeps us very responsive to our membership and what it is that they want to be focused on, while at the same time trying to be ahead of them. Mm. Try, you know, thinking, what is this going to look like or need to look like five years from now, 10 years from now? And by that, I don't mean our organization, but business and the way that we run and operate business. So how have you not fallen into the trap of, um, you know, maybe you kind of answered it, but it's difficult to see around the curve and it's difficult to maintain that focus of like, you know, this, you know, we're kind of keeping our sea legs on this undulating floor of risk and undulating floor of business and technology and all these different things that are contributing to this landscape that we're trying to, to traverse. Where do you think that sort of startup mentality came from? Did it come from the angel investor partner that was a piece of the puzzle on the front end? Was it just your your desire for longevity or is the longevity sort of an output that's a function of these kind of right mindsets that just happen to result in, you know, you guys still standing? Yeah, I don't know. I think it came from um, our experiences, you know, Scott's in having built and run his own business and worked with many other businesses that he not only invested in, but was advising from a strategic point of view. Uh, I also had you know, left my legal practice uh, three years prior and started up a business, um, uh, which I had recently sold at the point that uh, Scott and I got together. So definitely it comes from our personal mindset and what we enjoy. Um, but I think it also comes from the nature of what we were tackling, which was new and different. And it really, you know, required a, a, a paradigm shift, if you will, in the way that we think about business. What, what I think is really important is that we have never thought about GRC as sort of, um, you know, that stuff that people have to do that the board hates to hear about because it doesn't really affect their point of view about how they're trying to drive their business objectives. We reject that point of view and we always have. And maybe we were out ahead in that respect and, and uh, you know, others are, are catching up to it. I remember giving a speech at the uh, International IIA conference many years ago about GRC and I was kind of walking through the concepts. OSEG builds GRC around a concept of principled performance. The goal being to be able to reliably achieve objectives while addressing uncertainty and acting with integrity. And that is the goal that the GRC capabilities support. So I was kind of talking through this whole process and one of the men in the audience, an older gentleman, uh, now I don't think of him as older because he probably was what my age is now, but he said, why do I care about this? I'm an internal auditor. It's not my job to set up these systems. My job is to evaluate these systems. And I said, you're wrong. You're wrong. That may have been your job. And if you just want to like, be the janitor, you know, I had the same issue with the head of, of, of the SCCE at the time, 
who, you know, was advising his people not to be dis- distracted by the sexiness of GRC. They needed to focus on compliance, finding problems and fixing them. I said, that's a janitor's job. Find a mess and clean it up. If you want a seat at the table and you're all complaining about not being at the table, the big boys table, not the children's table, then you have to think about what the people at that table need and want. You have to serve the meal that they will appreciate. And that means What does risk management mean in the context of our business goals? What does compliance mean in the context of our business goals? And on having that relationship is is really what's important. Why do people fall into that janitor mindset? Why is it so easy? Like that internal auditor at that conference, that's not like a like a uh, a tail position. You know what I'm saying? Like that's almost an average position that a lot of people take, what do you think that's rooted in that, that myopia, I guess? Yeah, that's a good question too. You have a lot of good questions. I think that um, part of it comes from comfort. Mm. Um, You know, not everybody wants to step outside of their comfort zone. And these are jobs that need to be done. You do need someone who goes and, you know, goes down the checklists and sees what's there and not and has nothing to do with figuring out how to, you know, fix it um, or be able to measure it in a way that gives more actionable information. They just want to do that checking or the compliance people that, you know, you need people to be keeping an eye on issues that arise and making sure that they're handled correctly. These are meaningful jobs. Totally. They're just not the be all and end all of what a chief audit executive or a chief ethics and compliance officer should concern themselves with. And there's definitely fear around stepping outside of the box. There's fear around sticking your neck out. Why should I be the first person to suggest that we change the way we do something? You know, Yeah, uh, yeah, I'll get some credit if, if I'm right, but I'll get a whole lot of trouble if I'm wrong. So there's concern about that. Yeah. There's this sort of fixed, I don't know. I mean, as, yeah. as you're talking about this, I mean, we're kind of cut from the same cloth in a lot of ways. I see so much opportunity for ethics and compliance to really elevate to this, this strategic lever. I mean, we're drawing lines around the field and if you can draw those lines clearly and you can release the magic from the workforce, there's a, so much, you know, there's yeah. so much benefit that, ends up translating in a minimize, you know, a minimization of the dead weight loss that exists in the organization, more discretionary effort. There's a cultural element to it. All that stuff translates to the things that, as you kind of called them, you know, the big boys table is really concerned about. Right. Um, but there's also this sort of conflicting thing to your point of, you know, we're kind of goalies. We play goalie. A lot of these folks play, play goalie and you get all, you, you get no credit for the shots that you block. You get all the blame for the shots that get into the net And it's interesting when there are people like you in this field who have this sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of this abundance mindset or this sort of bigger picture view or this sort of visionary mentality of what could be to speak into and against some of the fears that are just kind of inherent to perhaps the sort of, you know, broad personality, the average personality type of people who sort of acclimate to to these fields. Without them, then we all are gonna be walking around with a broom in our hands and never wind up to the, you know, the big boys table as you called it. It's just such an interesting dichotomy yeah. that presents such a massive it, opportunity for folks. 
you know, you, you also just can't all, lay all the blame at the feet of those people who have mm-hmm. that attitude, right? Their leadership Great has point. not given them the space to take those steps. And in most cases, they haven't given them the resources either. So if you're busy putting out fires every day, you, you can't turn your focus to figuring out and selecting the best fire prevention equipment. You don't have time. Okay. And you may not have the budget to buy it anyway because your leadership is not supporting you. But isn't that a phrasing so, issue? Isn't that a, a persuasion issue from those folks who are just fighting fires all the time? Like, I mean, where does yeah, the maybe, shift, you know? Maybe, right? Like you want to be able to make the business case for change. Um, that's one of the reasons OSEG, you know, our website is oceg.org because we're a nonprofit. We have another website that we run called projectriskleader.com. And what we did there was we created some toolkits specifically to address this issue. There's one toolkit that I would recommend to everybody called uh, how to build a, a business case. And it addresses how to you know, build the case to make change in your risk, it's equally applicable to any compliance project, but it's really aimed at big risk projects. Um, And it has all kinds of materials that you can use to, you know, help you go through that process and it's free and anybody can download it. But the challenge that people have is, you know, do I have the time? Do I have the resources? Am I going to get the resources at the end of the day anyway? So am I just, you know, or do I need to figure out a quick win that I can show that will help me get the support I need to take those additional steps. But it's certainly a lot more interesting to take that path than to just be the janitor. It is, but also that's coming from somebody uh, in you who's very entrepreneurial, clearly. You kind of built a business, you were willing to roll the dice, and here you are 20 plus years later uh, yeah. you know, s- still standing. So perhaps you're kind of wired that that way. What is what is that wiring due to? Have you just always been that way, this kind of entrepreneur? Or have you always had this sort of visionary mindset? Or were there certain things <laughs> in your past that have like given you the confidence to step out on this ledge that a lot of folks that are, you know, that in your field and in our in our broader field are perhaps sort of scared to to do. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there is an element of, you know, it, it, it's your fundamental personality, right? And, you know, being interested and excited by starting new things. There's certainly, I joke all the time that Scott and I are both pretty uh, ADD because we just think of a new idea and we'll go chasing off after that new idea. And we have to, like control each other all the time to say, this is the path we've set. This is our business plan. And we need to, you know, think about it and execute on it and follow it. So there's some element of it just being who you are. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also, you know, as a lawyer, as a partner in a law firm, you, you need to create business, right? There are some lawyers that just enjoy being handed a case to work on and, that's what they're going to do. I always enjoyed the, the chase mm-hmm. and the building of the relationship and the understanding of the need of my client. And I think the best compliance officers, internal auditors, risk 
officers are that way. They enjoy and want to have those conversations with their internal clients to really understand what their goals are and to help them understand what their needs are to be able to meet those goals and to push back sometimes. Right. You know, like risk management isn't just about controlling the risk so you can meet your objective. It might be about telling you that your objective is going off the rails, that you have to rethink your objectives. So there is some, you know, you, you have to be a person that's comfortable with that, I think, to really succeed in that way. And you certainly can't be a, the kind of person that's afraid to speak up. Have you seen people successfully transition from, you know, that sort of type one to type two, that type one being, hey, I just like kind of doing these cases. I'm scared to speak up. I'm speaking in kind of broad brushstrokes. Yeah. Have you seen them transition to this other side of the chasm where there's more confidence to see this bigger picture or there's more confidence to speak up or push back or things like that? Or do you think it's like like a wiring baked in. Yeah. Wired in. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I certainly think that I've seen some people, uh, grow, you know, in, in their own level of personal confidence and, and interest. Um, I've mentored some people in that way when, you know, when I had associates who worked for me to becoming more confident in that way. But I, I think substantially, you know, it's not about convincing somebody to like being away or doing things that they don't like you, you know, some, sometimes people ask me, what, what do you need to be a great chief compliance officer or a great risk officer? And I think it's the same skill set that you need to be any kind of business leader. You can learn the rules, right? You can you can learn the methodology for how to conduct a risk assessment, or you can have people under you that do that. You can learn, you know, what regulations apply, or you can have people that report to you that do that. It, but what you really need are strong executive skills of leadership, of organization, of thinking uh, long term. Isn't that interesting? I mean, it's kind of like coaching in a way. Like sometimes the best coaches are not the best players and sometimes right. the best, you know, partners in a law firm or in a, like I used to be in accounting and like the best partner, the guy who everybody wanted to work for, who brought in the best business, he was just kind of an okay accountant. You know what I'm saying? So sometimes it's a different skill set and sometimes it's, yeah. you have to kind of get enough of those sort of fundamental repetitions to even put yourself in a position to ascend to that you know, coaching position or, or whatever. It's just such a, such an interesting dynamic. Cause it's not always, you know, I don't know. It's not like a worm growing into a bigger worm. Sometimes it's a worm turning into a, or a caterpillar turning into a butterfly or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 I remember when I was young and I was having some interviews when I was thinking about changing law firms after about four years in practice. And, um, and one person asked me, you know, well, what skills do you think you bring to bear that are most important? And my answer kind of surprised him. Um, but my answer was, um, I have found that I can engender confidence, that when I speak with clients and I work with them, they develop confidence in me and they're willing to you know, listen to what I have to say and to follow it. It's not that I know more necessarily, um, 
you know, about the law in that particular area, because I can look that up, figure it out. Right. But my ability to speak with them and to make it clear to them and to build that confidence. And that's the same thing I think is the most important skill for any of the people in this sort of second line of defense role. Uh, so what do you say? You're going places, kid. You're going to have my job one day. What did he say when you, <laughs> when you gave that answer? <laughs> What did he say? I, you know, I, I, I'm sure he you offered me the answer. a job. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> that's, that's a great answer. What kind of a kid, like what kind of a kid were you? What kind of a young person were you? What was your kind of childhood and, and what, what were those foundational <laughs> years like for you? Oh, that's interesting. So I will tell you, I'm first generation American, first generation born in America. Uh, my father was a, a German Jew who, fled Nazi Germany, uh, went to like the equivalent of high school, I guess, for a few years in England before coming to the United States and then joining the army. Uh, he was stationed for a while in Edinburgh, Scotland, where he met my mother, who was a Scottish Jewish woman, Wow, small Jewish community. They would uh, go to services on the uh, Shabbat, and then the community of about 600 families would take the soldiers home for lunch or for dinner. I think my grandfather was scouting out the best looking guys. Yeah. How about that kid? You have, bring him to our table. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, neither of them attended university. My father wanted to get, he came back after the war, uh, you know, and worked for a few years, showed up back in Scotland uh, after two years, three days before their wedding having not seen each other for two years. Wow. But he, you know, that's what he wanted to do. And at the, and so he didn't use his, you know, GI Bill. I guess it was called that even then from World War II. Yeah. But he was a business uh, man and he, um, he had different sales. He was a salesman really in, uh, in business. He didn't, uh, he at one point, became a sales manager and he hated it because he couldn't get the people under him to work the way he was willing mm -hmm. to work. He made more money doing sales. So he left that and went back to, you know, so he was kind of, I guess, his own uh, boss in a sense. Um, but so, you know, from them, I had, I guess you would say kind of a scrappy uh, point of view. Right. I, you know, I grew up in a very basically middle class, not at all upper middle class uh, family. I paid for my college education and my law school, mostly myself. Um, that was possible then, not like today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I had student loans, but they, they, you know, they probably came out to equal a little bit less than my first year salary as a lawyer. Wow. So, you know, not like people have today where their debt is five times their first year salary or more. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I was always kind of a talkative kid. I did theater and things that let you uh, imagine. Isn't that funny? 
well, what a, what an amazing story. First of all, uh, it resonates with me because I'm a first generation American as well. My dad was a salesman as well. So there's so much of <laughs> them that ends up kind of just being in our DNA, you know, metaphorically yeah. and, and literally, of course, but um, that talkative thing or, you know, just the way that you, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, the, I'm presuming what the influence that your dad had and what a great way to sell yourself when you said, I just engender confidence in people. And you might not have even made that connection at that time, but that's, that's 100% yeah. what sales is. You know what I'm saying? It um, is. That's true. But that scrappiness that comes from being a first generation American and you see, let me ask you this. Did you feel pressure? This, this is an interesting question that I was asked recently. Did you feel pressure to make something of the opportunity that they created for you? Or did you feel more like, look at this opportunity. It's my duty to take advantage of it. Where on that spectrum yeah, do you think you landed? That's interesting. I, I, don't, I wouldn't say I felt pressure. It, it was certainly always the expectation in my family that my sister and I would go to college. There right. was no question. And while I say I was first generation American and neither of them went to college, at the same time, my father came from a family that had been very successful, highly successful business people. Mm -hmm. You know, when he was a kid in Germany, he he definitely was, you know, upper middle class, whatever, upper, yeah. whatever. I mean, there wasn't really middle class, but, you know, a, a, an upper level of of society. Right. My mother's family were my grandfather was also a. a a shopkeeper. He had a, when my mother was young, um, he had a furniture shop. The family lore is that Sean Connery drove his delivery truck. Wow. Well, I say let's, let's run with that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, both sides of my family had, they may not have had, you know, university education, but they were highly erudite, well-read, um, and that was always a, a base in our house, right? Uh, and there was also in my house a big sense of social commitment. And I think that's part of what drives my interest in OSEG. You know, I left a very lucrative legal practice to start up a nonprofit um, which is a very different thing. Totally. And I think that comes from my sense of um, social responsibility that my parents had. My parents were very involved in the civil rights movement when I was young, you know, used to take us to meetings, things like that. And just, you know, I haven't really thought about this, but, you know, my mother too. I mean, when I was young, she didn't work. She did when I was older but she was always involved in organizations, um, social organizations, and always ended up being the president of those organizations. Um, it, I went through that period of don't volunteer for something because if you volunteer, you always end up having to take charge of it. And it's just too much of a commitment, but that's, yeah, that, I would say that's definitely been influential for me. You know, it's like we spend our lives climbing these mountains and it's sometimes, you know, you have to take the time to look back and it's sometimes it's fun to look down and see how far, you know, you've climbed and, you know, how, yeah. how big of a, an impact, you know, you've made. Um, you know, I'll, I'll just say the funny thing is that, you know, clearly having left legal practice, um, 
my colleagues, my former partners, they're always like, oh, I'm so jealous, so jealous of what you're doing. Interesting. Uh, right. Even though they probably make five times what I earn and they're not willing to give that up. That's the problem that they have. They've boxed themselves into that lifestyle, but they're not happy with it. They don't feel fulfilled by it. So let's go back to that, that decision that you made where you left this really lucrative job. You could have continued on that path and, yep. you know, been making five X or, or whatever, but something inside of you said, you know what I, you know, whether it's the social thing or you seeing your parents make this difference or your mom running these sort of social organizations, take me back to that, that divergence, you know, where, yeah. where those paths split and like, what gave you the confidence to go the, the path you took and what did that feel like? Yeah. So it's really interesting when I f first went to law school, um, and I'll tell you that when I was at university, I started out thinking I would go to law school. Then I moved away from that idea and I majored mm -hmm. in something completely unrelated to law. And then eventually I came back around to going to law school. And when I started it after the first semester, I thought to myself, this is kind of interesting. I think I'll do this for 20 years and then I'll do something else. Okay. I remember having that conversation with friends. I made it to 18. Wow. And then I stopped and started my business, which had to do with um, mitigation banking for wetlands and endangered species uh, development projects. But the reason I left at the point that I did was partly that that idea and opportunity had presented itself. Partly it was that at that point, I... Um, at the time I started the business, my daughter was uh, about a year and a half old. Um, and I didn't want to be spending such a crazy amount of time practicing law. And although I still was spending a crazy amount of time when it's your business, you can, you know, do it at six o'clock in the morning. And, it feels different though, doesn't it? Right. You can yeah. control your time differently. And then the main thing was that the practice of law had changed. It wasn't anymore about pleasing your client and being, you know, building these long-term relationships. It was, it was about how many hours do you bill and how many dollars does that translate into Interesting. how many people work under you, how do their hours translate? And, um, you know, I had partners who would fly on an airplane to a meeting for one client, bill that client for the flight time, work on another client's project while they were on the airplane, bill that client for the same airtime, right? And, you know, I remember once telling uh, one of the partners that I had had a dream about the case we were working on. He said, can you remember it? If you can remember it, you can bill it. <laughs> Amazing. And, yeah. you know, the time in a dream is like, I don't know, an hour per minute. So that's some, uh, that's some <laughs> yeah. good billable hours there. Yeah. Yeah. And none of this appealed to me anymore. You know, I, I, I enjoyed the work. I enjoyed the the things I was doing with my clients. I didn't enjoy the law firm. Interesting. So interesting to kind of live through that transition. Um, yeah. Yeah. I blame is... it all on Stephen Brill. You do for starting the American Lawyer Magazine, where they would every year run uh, the major law firms and the profits the revenue per partner and the 
average partner salaries and which all is, that data. Yeah, which is obviously Dang. also kind of uh, subject to like self-reporting bias. So then everybody thinks, oh my gosh, this is the average and it's not the average, yet it pushes everybody toward those same behaviors that lead to yeah. the world we're living in now, you know? It's yeah. crazy. Um, it is crazy. So uh, I just find what, what you said pretty interesting that they look from afar, oh my gosh, it's it. you can almost feel the kind of like regret in you know, them lamenting and saying, oh man, I wish I did something else. Were there times though, as you took this other path where you look back and like, is this the right thing to be doing? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, there were. Of course. And then there are certain things about being in a, you know, big firm practice that you miss, right? Like, you know, having assistants that can do all the detail stuff for you that now you have to do yourself. Right. So, you know, there's, um, yeah, pros and cons pros for and sure. Cons. So, and uh, and and anxiety, right? Like well, about yeah. other people's salaries that you're responsible for, and it's um, yeah, it's not for everybody. No, it's not. Um, but it's those people who are willing to sort of blaze a new trail that end up driving a bunch of change that can really change change the world. And I know that that sounds romantic, and sometimes it's sometimes I get accused of being bright eye and bushy tailed and too much of an optimist, but there's so much change that, you know, we can drive if we can get some of these things that we spend so much of our time talking about and working on, right. Uh, we really can change our workplaces, which brings me to this ESG situation, right? Everyone's talking about it. How does this feel from your standpoint? Is it an opportunity? Do you feel like people are kind of letting the water slip through their hands? What's the state of state of the world with respect to this new acronym that's sort of on the tip of everyone's tongue? Yeah, so interesting you asked me that. Like five minutes before we started talking, I just ended a, a, a webinar on ESG. And I have a lot of um, complicated thoughts about it. Uh, coming from my background in environmental law, mm -hmm. having lived through the first round of uh, you know, corporate social responsibility that was mostly greenwashing, right? Totally. Lots of, you know, fancy platitudes, no data or reality to really mm -hmm. back them up. Um, always found that, still find it really aggravating. Like when you see, you know, commercials from some oil company about something marvelous they did to restore wetlands without mentioning that they were court ordered and they're doing so under the eyes of a monitor, you know? Totally. So they, I, I have mixed feelings, but having said that, I have tremendous hope that this time and for many reasons, things will be different. Personally, I've always struggled with the legalistic point of view as a corporation being a person responsible only to its shareholders. You know, no business in society exists solely because of its shareholders. Society supports those businesses in so many ways totally. from, from the tax breaks that they may have to the roads that they use, to the, to the workers who are educated by the public's school systems. I mean, business and society are integrated mm -hmm. in ways that society is not ga heretofore gaining all the 
benefit or respect yep. that it should. And so I, you know, I have hope that having businesses uh, operate in a way that views society as a large and the communities that they work in as stakeholders that are equal to their financial shareholders will bring about change that will benefit the businesses as well. So for me, ESG isn't just about reporting to your investors and making statements that make your customers happy. It actually is about taking what a lot of people have viewed as um, decoration, I'll say, mm-hmm. you know, around the body of the business and instead applying it, integrating it into the business. It, you know, it, it goes beyond like tattooing it onto the business, right? Which is still decoration. It's really about changing the DNA of the business in a way you, you know, you could call it social engineering, I guess, um, that, that, that makes what's good for the business also good for the society in which it operates. So I have a lot of hope about that. And the reason I have hope is because I think we have technology now and the ability to um, uh, manage data in a more meaningful way that lets us really get below the covers and see what's really going on. And also see where making sometimes minor changes can have really big effects. So let's dive into that a little bit. So I have this broad theory. Get ready. Um, uh, so M&A has been going on forever, okay? People have been trading stocks forever. Um, this new tool has come out. This is broad brushstroke. A new tool has come out, spreadsheets, which now give us all this new ability to run big, you know, you can run a simulation with this tool and you can you know, get way more, more granular on the synergies that two different PLs that get added together can, can generate on the back end. Uh, you can do new analyses on, you know, the financial implications of trades and so forth that you're making. I don't think that the amount of alpha, the excess returns that are generated from these activities is materially different than that which, you know, our grandfathers were, were, were generating running their businesses or the M&A. So we have this tool that I think what comes along with it are a lot of opportunities for more externalities, positive and negative, to to be generated. And I think the the average impact of it is maybe a net zero. How do we not fall into that trap with this added technology from ESG? Like, how do we not fall into the same greenwashing? Like, maybe people are just better at greenwash. Like, people are better at at uh, you know gaming a financial model to get the outcome that they want how do we make sure that we're not gaming these these pieces of technology to just greenwash on a on a ones and zeros basis instead of just the glossy sort of ad that's in the new york times kind of a basis yeah yeah valid question i i don't know if i knew that i i i would be in charge of the world right maybe so <laughs> <laughs> but what i do know is Unfortunately, uh, sometimes we see the difference when there's a real impact, a negative impact, you know? So why are okay. That's a good point. banks starting to be concerned about climate change 
because the money that they invest in businesses, they're seeing the impact of climate change. They're, okay. right? they're, they're seeing the costs associated with actual events that relate to climate change today. And it's like, oh, wow, this is really, it, it all is going to come back to how it impacts you know, them in, in an economic way. So I think as it, not just in an indirect economic way, meaning not just by like reputational damage, mm -hmm. but actual, you know, cost of doing business. Yeah. And I guess so, like uh, the level of integration across our world is a lot higher to your point. Uh, the visibility to feedback loops is probably a lot quicker than perhaps it used to be. And, you know, that could be a tailwind for this kind of, I mean, I kind of agree with you. I think I have a lot of hope in this movement as well. I don't think this is merely a sort of a, uh, an artificial catalyst that, you know, ethics and compliance and sort of can sort of take advantage of and, you know, ride this sort of false wave. I think it's yeah. something that a lot of folks, I think my generation in, in particular is like thirsty for this sort of stakeholder approach versus this, uh, shareholder approach that is kind of, you know, been a blight on our economy and maybe world for, you know, decades at this point. Um, yeah. So I'm super, uh, you know, excited about it. Have you felt kind of this anxiety across our industry about this new thing? Like people don't know where to start or do you feel? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I think there's a lot that. of, they don't, they don't know where to start. They don't know what their part is. Um, they don't know how to assess the materiality of different aspects of ESG on their business. That's what we were talking about in our webcast today. Um, we did an ebook recently about operationalizing the ESG business imperative. It's available on those like, website in the resources section. Um, and that's what we were talking about. You know, how do you, because you can't boil the ocean, you know, you've got to figure out what's most material and where you prioritize and where you begin. Um, but I just want to say the G part of this isn't yet getting enough focus. I haven't seen as much there as I have around the social and the environmental and that, and that's, you know, understandable, I guess, but I think it's important that it is about the transparency of governance. It's not just about let's have more diversity on our board or, you know, things like that. It's really about transparency of decision-making and prioritization. Um, and so what's different is the speed. Speed is different now. So mm. speed of change, speed of information, speed of release of information, right? Mm -hmm. Like it used to be uh, when I was probably, let's say 1990, when I was first a partner in the legal practice, you would have, you would work with, um, companies on what to do if a crisis arose that they were going to have to respond to. So you, that they're going to have to respond to publicly, not just the physical response of it. Right. So it would be, okay, well, um, you know, when this happens, you want to make sure to call the lawyer, you want to call the PR person, the communications person, you want to have a meeting, you want to, you want to make sure there's one voice, you want to let the employees know nobody should talk about this. You know, you want to get this all done in 24 hours. 24 hours today is a joke, totally. right? The minute it happens, 
everybody's on social media from your company, you know, talking about it. Uh, I mean, you do not have time to plan and respond in the same way anymore. And the same is true for all of these issues that arise through your, you know, ESG. So you might give a report, you're, you know, you're going to put together a beautiful report for your investors. I was saying today on our webcast, it's not going to be very long before those investors who totally rely on real data analytics mm -hmm. now, differently than they did a decade ago, they're going to say, thanks for the report. I want you to give it to me in a format where I can click on any piece of it, anything you're claiming, and go behind it and see what you're basing that on. I want to see the data myself. I want to be able to rerun your analysis myself. You know, I want to see that it's real and that it and that it, it doesn't have flaws. I'm going to guess there are going to be people, you know, big investors asking for that within 24 months. I think you're That's my guess. Totally spot on. And that in and of itself um, can allow for this whole movement to take a different path than that corporate social responsibility movement. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Where it just kind of fizzled out and it was just, everybody kind of thought it was a joke. There I said it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I want to be conscious of time. I want to wrap up by asking you this question. If you can go back in time and give a young Carol some advice that you wish you had, what, what would that be? Learn better time management skills. Wow. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, that's good. I love, uh, well, this, this has been a lot of fun. I feel like we could probably keep talking for another two hours. There's so many other things I'd love to ask you, but, uh, love your work. I love your organization. I think, uh, the fight that you're fighting is a noble one. And I think, you know, we're kind of getting to this point where this is going to start really spreading like wildfire and the next 20 years are going to look way different than the last 20 years. Yeah, I think so too. Well, thank you so Thanks. much. It's just been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Until next time. Bye.